This morning I'm going to preach a message that, uh, that I did not prepare. This was, uh, I, I prepared it, but, I, but it's by Octavius Winslow. Every once in a while I like to preach a message. I haven't done that a lot, but I, but, uh, I did feel like doing it this today. And this is on Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. So if you will take your Bibles there, please, uh, to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to read here these uh, seven verses. Isaiah chapter 7. And let's stand together, please, for the reading of the Word. Uh, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let, let it be deep as Sheol and or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Thank you, and you may be seated. This message is entitled Christ, Emmanuel, or God with us. It's by Octavius Winslow. Octavius Winslow, give a little biographical statement here. He was born in 1808, died in 1878, was born in, in Pentonville, a village near London. He was eight. He was the eighth of 13 children. He grew up in New York, but he spent most of his life in England. Winslow was one of the best known nonconformist ministers of the 19th century in England and held pastorates in Lymington, Spa, Bath, and Brighton in England. He was one of the preachers that was used by Spurgeon at the opening of the Spurgeon's, uh, Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. Winslow pastored a Baptist church on Warwick Road in Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, from 1839 to 1858. And in 1858, he became the founder and first minister of the Kensington Chapel in Bath. In, in 1867, Winslow left the Baptists and was ordained as an Anglican deacon and priest, serving as then a minister of the Emmanuel Church in Brighton. He died in 1878 after a short illness. So this is the message. I, I, it is shortened for, for time, and it has also been uh, edited uh, for uh, our understanding a little better. Uh, but uh, the titles 
of the Lord Jesus are not like those of the world, empty and vain and sounding things. Each one possesses an impressive meaning, significant either of some distinctive trait of his personal character or illustrative of some important aspect of his official work. There is no study of our Lord more precious and instructive to those who love Him than the varied and expressive names He bears. A single title is to them often as a volume replete with divine truth, as a mine of untold wealth, or as a box of most precious ointment or as a tower of impregnable strength. Christ's more familiar and prominent titles, perhaps the most significant and impressive of them all, is the one before us, Emmanuel. This remarkable title is the fulfillment of prophecy and a confirmation of his Messiahship. It is an unfolding of a twofold nature, bringing before our view at once his deity and his humanity. The narrative is in this way. In Matthew chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23, we read, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. In the present day, it is no light thing to maintain the integrity of the Word of God. On every hand and in every quarter, it's malignant, it is malignantly and fiercely assailed. Men of deep intellect, professing religion, and eminent in their uh, relation to the professing church, devote all their power and influence, learning and position, to the destruction of the Bible. I speak advisedly, the destruction of the Bible. The Word of God is wholly divine, and it must be, in faith and humility and love, received, impugn the integrity of one part, and you have impugned the integrity of all. Loosen one fiber of the sacred fabric, and all unravels. Tamper with the integrity of this book, question its veracity, reject its inspiration, or doubt its canonicity, then you'd have taken away the Bible. And when you've taken away the Bible, what do you have left? Accept then, with gratitude, every fulfilled prophecy as evidencing the truth of the Bible and as establishing your individual faith in the inspiration, integrity, and preciousness of the divine word. That is all you have to guide you through this through the sins, the snares, the sorrows of this life, as you progress to the happiness and the glories of the life to come. That's what it's all about. 
So hold fast to the integrity of these two witnesses, the Old and the New Testaments. They confirm and establish each other. And the Old Testament predicts the New, and the New fulfills the Old. And thus both unitedly testify, as John 17, 17 tells us, Thy word is truth. And what and we see here in this text before us this morning the unity of these two things the Old Testament prophet Isaiah predicting and the New Testament author Matthew uniting that Old Testament text and applying it to our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. So I I see three things here. The deity of the Son of God. And then I see here the deity of Christ in the economy of redemption. And finally, I see the incarnation of the Divine Son as fulfilling a glorious reality. So note first then, the deity of the Son of God. Upon entering the uh, present title of our Lord, Emmanuel, we are uh, on the very onset uh, confronted with the most marvelous and glorious doctrine of the Christian faith, the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. I see that is, uh, in the almost universal acceptance within, the, within Christendom and all of its history, even today. This essential doctrine of revelation has been generally accepted by all branches of the Christian church. Even in the creed of the most corrupt of of all religious communions, the Roman church. It's found to exist even in that church, though blended with so much error, erroneous doctrine overlaid then with superstitious worship, which neutralizes its power and veils its luster. I think probably one of the clearest church statements concerning the embodiment of this essential truth of the gospel is found in the in the doctrinal formula of the Church of England. And I quote that here. The Son, who is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance of the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided. Wherefore is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, buried, to reconcile his Father to us, and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all the actual sins of mankind. Thus, this doctrine does not rest on human testimony alone. It appeals to the high and divine authority in, uh, to support it, the revelation and teaching of God's inspired word. So then, to this let us turn. Not just the confessions of the church, but to the word of God itself. And the title of our Lord under consideration then 
distinctly affirms his deity. God with us. So due to limited time, this proof is constrained to a summary. The title itself would seem to carry to every discerning and earnest mind desiring to know the truth touching this doctrine sufficient evidence of its truth. The presence of God with man has in all dispensations of the church been an acknowledged fact because it's taught in the word of God. The Jews, as God's particular, uh, peculiar people, had a more immediate token of his presence by an appearance of glory enshrouded with the divine effulgence over the tabernacle. This they termed the Shekinah, which means divine presence. God was with them in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But this symbolic and extraordinary manifestation of the divine presence was to cease with the first temple and to be replaced by a new and more spiritual dispensation succeeding the old and another and more wonderful temple was to enshrine the deity. God would still be with his people and would dwell in the midst of his church, but this new temple would be God with us. God manifest in the flesh. And this is the name by which he would be known, Emmanuel, God with us. What is the line of proof? Briefly this. All that belongs to deity is ascribed to our Lord. For example, the names and titles of deity belong to him. He is essentially called the first and the last. He who was and is and is to come. The Almighty, the Everlasting Father, the Lord of glory, the Lord God of the holy prophets, the only begotten Son of God, the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, to name but a few. These are not vain-sounding titles, but the embodiment and, ex and the express of His very Godhead. Had He not pre-existed before He touched the horizon of our earth, had He not subsisted in eternity in the divine essence and the glory of majesty of the supreme God, could it with any propriety have been said of Him, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever? We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. You are the same and your years shall not fail. Yesterday, today, and forever. But not only to titles, but his, the, his works of deity prove it. Works of deity are ascribed to him. It is said that all things were made by him 
And without him was not anything made that was made. That by him all things were created that are in heaven and on, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things are held together. He upholds all things by the word of his power, that his throne is forever and ever. Surely, he who was before the created must himself be uncreated. And he who is before all beings must be preexistent. And he who can create, sustain, and govern all worlds and all beings and all things must be the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, and everlasting Jehovah. Indeed, all this is ascribed to our blessed Lord. The miracles of our Lord were equally confirmatory of His deity. By the exercise of His divine power, He healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, strengthening to the strength to the paralyzed, he fed thousands with a few loaves and small fishes. He controlled the tempest. He exhibited his authority over death and the grave, despoiling their laurels, rescuing their prey, and bringing back the spirit from Hades and the body from the grave to life, new life in service. And then there is his testimony. Did not our Lord ever deny His essential deity? Never once. Never once. On the contrary, He invariably vindicated the doctrine, boldly acknowledging that He was one with God. Hence He said, If I do not the works of the Father, believe me not. But if I do... Though you do not believe, believe the, the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. I and the Father are one. And then, when disclosing his ministry on, excuse me, when closing his ministry on earth, as if most fully and demonstrably to establish his union with the substance and the incomprehensible nature of the Godhead, he commissioned the apostles to go forth and to baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Had not our Lord been equal with the Father, how confused and inappropriate and impious would be this language thus representing himself as a joint and equal object of our faith, hope, and love. Such would be very wrong. But how animating and sanctifying is the thought that when thus dedicating ourselves to the triune God and rendering worship and most dutiful obedience. It is because we recognize three distinct persons in one Godhead and look for rich and inestimable blessing flowing from the love of God, 
the Father through the merits of God the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This suggests then another view of the subject equally confirmatory to the doctrine and I refer to the deity of Christ in the economy of redemption. The necessity of Christ's deity implied in the whole economy of redemption is what we wish to look at here. The salvation of sinners. Aren't we glad? There could have been no salvation of sinners apart from the three persons of the Godhead. In accomplishing redemption, it was necessary that an ample satisfaction be made to the moral government of God. A full atonement for the infinite transgression. The righteousness of the law must be fully vindicated and the claims of justice fully satisfied. So it was equally necessary then that a provision should be made not only for the pardon of sin and the justification of the sinner, but that also and without which neither of them could be availed to bring the sinner to heaven. A provision should be made for the spiritual renovation of the soul. Hence, the necessity of the Trinity. The Father is reputed as loving man. The Son dying for him. The Spirit regenerating him. And in this, the overcoming of Satan and of his works. Behold him sitting, setting the seal of the truth of his deity then and manifesting to all that he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. By overcoming Satan, vanquishing death, bursting the barriers of the grave by ascending triumphantly to heaven, leading captivity captive, and from thus dispensing the blessings of His grace to men, even rebellious men, that God might dwell in them and with them. This work of the Godhead then requires the doctrine of the Incarnation which is what we're celebrating today uh, in, with the birth of our Savior. And it is right, really a chief cornerstone of our faith. God became flesh. And here reposes the entire fabric of our salvation. This is the key that unlocks the deep mystery of divine love. The solution of every difficulty that presents itself to the soul in its struggle to be saved. Let your faith simply grasp this truth. And all is safe with your everlasting well-being. Don't, don't pause to sound it with poor, the poor plumb line of your reason. Don't try to figure it out before you believe it. Don't wait to understand it. Just receive it. Believe it. Grasp it. Receive it with the simplicity of a little child and it will make you happy. It is the great mystery of godliness. Then, how can you and a very finite being 
a sinfully finite being, be supposed to fully comprehend a truth that touches the very heights and sounds the very depths of infinity itself, over which angels bend with humility, reverence, and awe. No, lay down your reason at the feet of faith and let faith take her place at the feet of Jesus and as I have said, receive the kingdom of God as a little child and you will be saved. There can be no salvation apart from the belief of the doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God. For the salvation of man and it's in the very words of the evangelist. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 and verse 12. This is the stone which the deniers of deity and the atonement of Christ have set aside, rejecting, over which then they build the fabric of their own future upon the quicksands of their own works, reposing upon which shame and everlasting contempt must be their portion. Become then a humble worshiper at Bethlehem, a believing student at Calvary, a joyful saint at the tomb, and yours will be the divine benediction of him that believes and yet has not seen. The path of the soul is traveled then to glory commences with the manger, winds around the cross, sweeps past the grave, ascends to and is lost in the perfect sight of faith and the full fruition of hope and the boundless sea of love circling around the throne of heaven where sits our Savior, crowned with light, clothed in a body like our own. Wow. So then thirdly, the incarnation of the Son fulfills a glorious reality. And finally, we approach that branch of our subject which brings it home and blessedly to our individual selves. How wondrously and completely does this truth, the Incarnation, span the wide chasm between the infinite and the finite. God and man. God is no longer to the believer's mind an incomprehensible and invisible abstraction. He is brought near, as it were, visible, tangible, real. In a word, He is with us. Let's illustrate in a few particulars of this marvelous and yet less experiential and precious truth. In the first place, it is not merely an angel that is with us or a man that is with us. It is deity who is with us. And none less than Yahweh Himself, Israel's covenant God and Keeper. We cannot do anything short of deity. 
If deity does not come to our aid, if deity does not stoop to our lowest state, if deity does not save us, we're lost for all eternity. When we fell in the first Adam, our humanity was lost and all of its original righteousness and strength gone. If deity did not interpose on our behalf, if God did not himself embark in our rescue, the inevitable consequence must have been the shades of endless death. But a plan of deliverance had been conceived from the everlasting. God, in the infinite counsels of his own mind, resolved upon the salvation of his eternally chosen and loved people. He saw that there was no eye to pity them and no arm to save them, and he resolved upon our salvation to embark upon it and to accomplish it. And eternity, as it rolls upon its axis, will magnify his name and show forth his praise. Oh, beloved, what an assuring and comforting truth this is. God with us. This is God, our God, forever and ever. And will be our Father even unto death. Oh, see that your hope is built on nothing more or upon nothing less than Christ. The rock of ages must be our only foundation if we're to be saved. He got Emmanuel is God with us in our human nature. This is amazing. How near you are, O Lord. Clothed in our very flesh. What? Did you stoop to my humanity? Did you take upon you the union of your deity with my poor inferior nature? Were you bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? Did this my nature so diseased and paralyzed and tortured, so nervous, weak and trembling, which oft times I sigh to lay down as a burden I cannot I can no longer bear? Did this same nature as with a garment your deity, my Lord? You put it on like a garment. How near you were. And how near you have brought yourself to me. Truly you are God with me. For you are God in me. Thus the humanity of our incarnate God unseals a spring of ineffable sympathy. We need human sympathy because we're human. Angelic sympathy would not meet our case, nor divine compassion alone. He will not chide you, clinging child of suffering, grief, for craving and asking it too. For we read there in Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, but without sin. 
Emmanuel is God with us in every circumstance of our earthly history. History is all foreknown to and prearranged and shaped by God Himself. There's no uncertainty, nothing merely accidental, nothing that belongs to the even to the most trivial incidents of our life. It is sustaining and consoling then to bear this in mind. A crushing event may at first burst ours and stagger our faith. But when it comes so unexpectedly and untowardly, so strange and mysterious, yeah, we may stagger. Our truth may, our, our faith may stagger in this. But we may be compelled at the moment then of its occurrence to exclaim, is God's hand in this? Has this a place in the everlasting covenant? Can this belong to the all things that work together for my good? For the moment our feelings may be stunned and our faith staggered, but the Lord comes to our help. And He does not leave His child long in doubt, neither as to the source of the event or to the hand that is given in its mission that guides in its outcome. Indeed, he is Emmanuel, God with us, even in our afflictions. What the water shall not overflow you, for he controls the winds and the waves. He will be with you in your bereavement, for when on earth his warmest tears were in sympathy with a grief like yours. He is with you, O tempted one. For he in all points was tempted like his brethren and knows how to support those who are thus tempted. So we conclude. First, live in the realizing sense of the Lord's presence. Do not be satisfied with a religion which is Lacking this essential element. Seek to live in this atmosphere. Go nowhere and indulge in no recreation from which your Lord will be absent. Be jealous of His presence. Secondly, let not worldliness, levity, coldness thrust Him from your arms. And should you walk in darkness or wade through affliction, or battle with Satan, unconscious of the uh, sustaining and cheering presence of Emmanuel? Yet fear it not, he is near you, nearer than you can imagine. Unse unseen, unheard, unfelt, Christ is still at your side. A very present help in time of need. He knows your sorrow, sees your difficulty, is acquainted with all your mental despondency, spiritual distress, presently your tear-dimmed, cloud-veiled eyes. They shall be opened, and you shall see Emmanuel at your side. And all the gentleness of his love 
and in all the might of his power. Then thirdly, shall we soon realize this presence in glory, unshaded by cloud, unmingled with a tear? Yes. No more darkness, no more grief, no more sin, no more separation. Forever with the Lord. Walk in the sunshine of this blessed hope. And you shall walk in the light of life. Your present light affliction is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall soon be revealed. Oh, how we shall marvel as we plunge into the sea of love and glory that we were ever allowed present trials and disappointments and persecutions to affect us as they did. We'll forget it all. One breath of heaven, one refrain of its song, one sight of our glorified Emmanuel will obliterate all the sad memories of the past and light up the endless joys and splendors of our future. Oh, God, with us. Oh, glorious name. Let it shine in endless fame. God and man in Christ unite. Mysterious depths and height. God with us, amazing love. Brought him from his courts above. Now you saints, his grace admire. Swell the song with holy fire. God with us. But tainted not. With first transgressors blot. And yet he did our sin sustain. Bear the guilt, curse, and shame. God with us. Oh wondrous grace. May we see him face to face. That we may Emmanuel sing. As ought our God and King. Our Father, oh, how thankful we are for our Emmanuel. Our blessed Jesus. We're few here, but we are all united in one heart in this Lord. He is everything to us. We want to admire Him. We want to acknowledge Him. We want to worship Him. We want to believe Him. We want to trust Him. We want to walk with Him. We live in in some very difficult times, Lord. You know. Oh, our God, be real to us now as we celebrate the incarnation of our Savior in this day of worship. And we'll praise you and thank you as we anticipate that day when he will come again to receive us unto himself. And there shall we ever be with our Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.